Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The name Osama bin Laden will live in infamy. Born in 1957 in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, he was one of 50 children to self-made millionaire construction manager Mohammed bin Laden. He went on to study business before becoming obsessed with extreme religious teachings, a path that would lead him to Afghanistan to fight the Soviets, but only later to turn his attention towards the United States and the founding of the terrorist group Al-Qaeda. From here, he would mastermind attacks against U.S. embassies in Nairobi, Kenya, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and on the USS Cole in 2000. But of course, what he's known for is masterminding those attacks on 9-11-2001. It was here that 19 militants associated with Al-Qaeda staged attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and on another target, which, if successful, we believe may have been the White House. So we know who Bin Laden is, or indeed was, but what happened to him after 9-11? We know he was killed in 2001 by US Navy SEALs in the famous Abbottabad raid, but what did he do in the decade in between? A decade on the run. I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and today I'm joined by Dr. Nelly LaHood, who is a senior fellow at the New America Think Tank in Washington, D.C., Now, Nellie has a unique position in the fact that she was granted access to over 90,000 files and 6,000 letters that were retrieved from Bin Laden's compound immediately after his death. And it's from these files that Nellie and her team have been able to piece together a remarkable picture of Bin Laden and reveal how he was finally found. I know you're going to find this one truly fascinating. And if you're enjoying the podcast, then please share far and wide. Like and review online wherever you get your podcasts. Send it to your friends, family, and everyone who loves history. But now, here is Nelly LaHood on the Bin Laden Papers. Hi, Nelly. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me, James. Good. Well, it really is great to have you on the podcast because we've done episodes before on the history of terrorism, the long history of terrorism. We've gone back to, I mean, the 1920s and attempts to blow up Wall Street. We've done episodes dedicated to Al-Qaeda And we've had those who survived 9-11, like Joe Dittmar, who was on the the highest floor of the second tower when the second plane hit. And so we've really investigated quite a lot the history of terrorism. But 
There's one figure that we have perhaps overlooked here on the podcast, and that is Osama bin Laden. Now, of course, we all know who Osama bin Laden is. He's one of the most infamous and reviled figures of the 21st century. We know him, of course, as the architect behind those attacks on 9-11. But your work provides us with a, a whole new layer into somebody that perhaps we thought we knew every single thing about. Because into your hands have been placed some new primary source details about Osama bin Laden. Tell us, what is it that you have been analysing? Well, let me just put this in a bit of context, because the book, The Bin Laden Papers, is actually based on Al-Qaeda's internal communications. These were not meant for public consumption. These were Al-Qaeda's closely guarded secrets. And the reason we have them and the reason why I was able to write The Bin Laden Papers is thanks to the Special Operations Forces who carried out the raid that killed Osama bin Laden in his compound in Abu Tabad in May 2011. And there's a rich story, if I may, about this. Uh, the mission was supposed to be completed within 30 minutes. And that's because Admiral McRaven, who oversaw the raid, had done a study back in 1996 that explored several special operations missions and had concluded that such missions should be completed within 30 minutes. Any delay equates with vulnerability, so time was of the essence. And the SEALs were trained for that. Now, as the mission was underway, and even though the SEALs had killed bin Laden before their 30 minutes was up, they still asked for extra time. And they did so because they found some computers and electronic gears on the top floor of the compound. So McRaven immediately understood the value of the computers and the electronic gear. And he knew immediately that they were going to yield some very valuable intelligence. So he gave them the go-ahead. Now, he wrote about this in his books, his stories, and I reached out to him to inquire about the additional time that the SEAL spent in the compound. And he kindly let me know that at 40 minutes, he told them to wrap it up, and about eight minutes later or so, they took off. So these papers, and I can say a little bit more about the papers if you like, but we are talking, in our, in, and it bears repeating, that these were meant to be secret. Al-Qaeda did not want any of this to become public. That's why the information that we have is highly authoritative. It is by bin Laden, his top associates, what they were communicating, what they were planning, and what was happening to Al-Qaeda during the time when we didn't know, when we didn't have access to bin Laden. If I may say something about the collection, it's very rich. It's an extensive collection. And what happened is for a very long time, these papers continued to be under the purview of the intelligence community. But within a year of the raid, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence declassified some 17 documents through the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. And subsequently, in 2015, 2016, and 2017, 
they declassified the same office, declassified several other batches directly on its own website. Now, up until then, the intelligence communities categorized these letters, meaning they identified which was internal communications and which was not. So all the researchers needed to do was to click on a link and open the file. But in November 2017, the CIA declassified everything that they were going to declassify according to their press release. We're talking about a massive volume, thousands of files consisting of text, audio, and video files. I must have clicked on thousands of files before I determined that the text files were going to be the most important. And with the help of two research assistants, we went through all the text files, nearly 97,000 files, and we identified the internal communications. And as I had suspected, we had plenty to work with, and I was able to work on about 6,000 pages, Arabic pages of Al-Qaeda's internal communications. And it's really after going through that process that my solo work on the book proceeded. And effectively, the book exists thanks to the additional 18 minutes that SEALs spent in Abu Tabad. So that's why the information that we have is highly valuable. And as I said, it's highly authoritative. Well, this is truly fascinating because it gives us a glimpse inside the mind of Osama bin Laden and how Al-Qaeda was able to operate or indeed not operate after 2001 when the war on terror really starts to ramp up. Do the files that you look into go back to late 2001? Do they go back further or are they a little bit more after 9-11? For the most part, they are after 9-11. So we have some poetry that was drafted back in 2000 by Osama bin Laden's third wife on the occasion of their daughter's engagement. But it doesn't really tell us much about operational value. The earliest that we have in the documents, some handwritten notes by Osama bin Laden in September 2002. And then we discover that he was not in communications with his associates for almost three years. One of the, the revelations is that bin Laden had to disappear out of necessity in the wake of the Operation Enduring Freedom that was launched in October 2001. And so this he must have disappeared sometimes in November 2001. And he was virtually incommunicado for almost three years. And he was only able to resume contact with his associates sometimes in 2004. And there are some letters that were shared with him that had occurred during that time, but very few. So his associates knew he was alive, but there was no way for him to continue in that day-to-day leadership role or to help perpetrate attacks around the world. So does this make us rethink some of the things that we've held Bin Laden personally responsible for? Are there others out there that need to be held account for some of the attacks that happened in the intervening years? Just to go back to your earlier point, we don't even know whether his associates knew that he was alive. So he clearly, at certain points, he started releasing public information. So that gave him a hint that he was alive. But it's not as if they knew where he was. 
And we know this because the letters that were composed in 2004, we find Bin Laden having to describe events that occurred back in 2002. We find, you know, his associates writing in their letters, briefing him about, and I'm quoting, during the past three years, since you had to disappear out of necessity and so on and so forth. So clearly there was a gap in communications between Bin Laden and his associates for nearly three years. So that's that's one element. And to your question, you know, we find out from the letters that Al-Qaeda was effectively shattered once the Taliban regime collapsed, sometimes in December 2001, and Al-Qaeda was unable to regain its ability to mount international attacks after 2011. Now, to be sure, Al-Qaeda was responsible for the 2002 Mombasa attacks that occurred in November of that year, which targeted an Israeli-owned hotel and also an Israeli jetliner, but missed. But the reason why Al-Qaeda was able to pull it off was because the operative who was tasked with planning this operation had been dispatched from Afghanistan to East Africa before 9-11. And so he didn't have to endure the drama that Al-Qaeda had had to endure after Operation Enduring Freedom was launched. And even after 2004, that is after bin Laden regained or resumed his, his ability to communicate with his associates, we find out from the letters that Al-Qaeda's abilities were really very diminished and it couldn't mount any international attack after that, despite uh, bin Laden itching continuously for more international terrorism. So that's interesting because when you look back through the history or when you look in the textbooks about terrorism and counterterrorism, you start to look at this list of terrorist attacks that take place after 9-11 that Al-Qaeda are held directly responsible for or at least partly responsible for. So I'm talking about the Madrid bombings or the 7-7 attacks on London, which forever be ingrained in my mind and I'm sure in the mind of many of our listeners. But are you saying that this isn't something that was masterminded by bin Laden? This is This couldn't have been done at the hands of a all-controlling Al-Qaeda because they had been shattered by this point. Just to give you an idea, James, I mean, the letters speak of their ordeals, their aimlessness, their inability to even make a phone call after that time. We learn from the letters that Al-Qaeda's leaders initially tried to flee to Pakistan, and there they were met by a comprehensive campaign of arrest. And according to the letters, some 600 brothers were captured and many were killed. Then some of them had to cross illegally into Iran, where there were some Sunni militants in Iran who were working against the Iranian regime, obviously, who were happy to help Al-Qaeda forge IDs and rent houses. And they were able to stay under the radar for nearly a year until the Iranian government was able to track them down. And once they did, that, that's in December 2002, they detained them. So they had no abilities to do much. So 
the letters, I mean, we find in the letters harrowing examples of what was happening to Al-Qaeda's leaders. And at no point was there a reference about Al-Qaeda's ability to mount any attacks. So I find it inconceivable, judging by the letters and by the accounts of Al-Qaeda's leaders, that they could have been able to carry out those attacks that were attributed to Al-Qaeda. For example, the Madrid bombing, which occurred in 2004, you know, in September that year, Bin Laden's associates are writing to him and telling him about their incapabilities of doing anything. So surely you would expect that when they were uprising him to show some proud, you know, that they were proud to have done this thing. And in fact, in September 2004, their advice to Bin Laden was that it's way too dangerous for us to remain here. And perhaps we should pack up and leave and go to Iraq, where, um, and to quote one letter, when God knew of our afflictions, he opened the door of jihad for us in Iraq. This was a reference to the jihadi group that was led by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi in Iraq and that emerged in the, on the Iraqi scene after the US war in 2003. So clearly I can't imagine how these leaders are writing these letters and still have been responsible for the attack in Madrid. And, and to be clear, also subsequent letters all the way through 2011, we find Bin Laden itching for more attacks and we find his associates having to counsel him on their inability even to move in North Waziristan where they sought refuge because of the drone campaign and so on. So at no point do we encounter in the letters references to Al-Qaeda being able to mount the international terrorist attacks that were attributed to the group. From Wondery, American History Tellers is a podcast that explores extraordinary events from the history of the United States and brings them to life. And in an all-new season, you'll learn about a tragedy that is often overlooked in American history, the Great Mississippi Flood. In the summer of 1926, the American Midwest saw rainfall like it had never seen before. And there was only one place for all that rain to go, the Mississippi River. In total, the flood submerged 27,000 square miles in seven states, destroying crops, paralyzing transportation, and washing away hundreds of farms and communities. By the time the floodwaters receded, as many as 1,000 Americans were dead, and more than 600,000 were left homeless. Learn about the forgotten history of one of America's worst natural disasters, and how the racism, exploitation, and betrayal that followed it transformed the American landscape forever. Listen to American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So American counterterrorism is working at this point. It has Al-Qaeda on the run, but it's not working 100% because Bin Laden's not been found by this point. He does come back to take the reins of Al-Qaeda. So at that moment when he he re-emerges as the head honcho of Al-Qaeda, do you start to see an uptick in the group's activity? Do you start to see an increase in attacks? Absolutely not. And let me explain. When he resumed contact with his associates in 2004, he was full of plans. You know, he had major ambitious plans. One of the uh, main plans that he wanted to carry out was to replicate the 9-11 attacks. But at that time, he knew that security had become quite tight at airports. So he suggested to his associates that perhaps they should derail locomotives in the United States. And as you can expect, his associates who were afflicted to use their words, you know, just, you know, had apprised him, as I said earlier, that they're in no position even to make a phone call in Pakistan or to do much in any case. And as I said, they wanted to, their advice was we should, we should head to Iraq. And they also told him that they had become very fearful of being betrayed by the Taliban, many of whom, according to the letters, had been lured by the American dollar. So they were not even safe in their own environment. In Afghanistan, we find out that Mullah Omar had asked in December 2001, had ordered all the Arabs to evacuate Afghanistan because they observed that the American campaign had targeted Arabs and their families. So they had to leave Afghanistan, and eventually they sought refuge in North Waziristan. And even in that remote environment, they had to hide because the area was littered with spies, as the letters put it. So what bin Laden did, and this is his achievement in 2004, is that he changed the structure of al-Qaeda because many of his top leaders had been either killed or detained. So he had to come up with a new structure of Al-Qaeda. He created, for instance, 
an entirely new position, which is the leader of Al-Qaeda in the Afbaq region in Afghanistan and Pakistan. This is a position that was not, that had not existed before 9-11. And the reason he created this position is because he wanted somebody in his place to be able to deal with tribal leaders. He also created different positions, you know, who would be responsible for international terrorism, who would be the deputy of that leader. What he did, and this is this is quite significant, is to create a chain of command, if you like, that allowed the organization to maintain a certain structure of leadership. Now, also because of the concern over the Afghan Taliban, he instructed his associates to hide. And hiding became really their modus operandi. And he instructed them that they shouldn't really do a lot of movement, that any meetings that were important, that they should endeavor to conduct such meetings by letters rather than in person. So we find Al-Qaeda, what he did, as I said, so he mapped out this chain of command. We have Al-Qaeda being reconstructed in 2004. And that continued, that lasted until his death. But there was nothing in terms of operational substance to talk about in those years. But yes, there was a command structure, but nothing to show for it in terms of, in terms of international terrorism. But what about these international networks, the franchises of Al-Qaeda? So we've got Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Does he not have full control over these? They're conducting a number of attacks across the region. So you're absolutely right about that. And and it all started in 2004 when Abu Musab al-Zarqawi pledged allegiance to bin Laden and wanting to be part of al-Qaeda, and bin Laden responded. And in fact, we discover in the letters that bin Laden welcomed this. He thought that this would be something that would revive global jihad, that Muslims around the world would be in a position to support jihadis. But this turned out to be a catch-22 for bin Laden and al-Qaeda broadly, because they were in no position to be able to have a hands-on management of these groups. And we find out that these groups had different agendas from the global jihad that al-Qaeda championed. Al-Qaeda wanted to be in the news because they wanted to attack Americans. We find out instead that first the Iraq-based group was very sectarian in its attacks. And it's also more problematic, perhaps, the fact that it couldn't really rally all jihadi militants, all jihadi militants in Iraq behind the leadership of Azarqawi. So what Al-Qaeda found itself doing, really mediating between these groups and hoping to bring them together. The other groups, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Shabaab, turned out to be, again, a source of problems for Al-Qaeda because they wanted to act on their own. They didn't. They they were, for instance, AQAP, the one in, in Yemen, was very focused on fighting the Yemeni government. And this infuriated bin Laden, as well as other Al-Qaeda leaders. The group that seemed to have been more on the same page with bin Laden is AQAM, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, simply because that group 
was very content with its limitations. They focused their attacks mostly on capturing the Western hostages. And in fact, it's really this group that inspired Al-Qaeda to be able to capture an Iranian diplomat at one point and try to get, because they wanted their detainees to be released from Iran. So Al-Qaeda, it's it's only a couple of hostages that Al-Qaeda was able to capture in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which it effectively learned from the AQAM. So it wasn't really Al-Qaeda teaching AQAM, it was AQAM inspiring Al-Qaeda, as you like. But yes, these groups uh, were acting in Al-Qaeda's name and for the counterterrorism community, generally, it was assumed that Al-Qaeda was in command of the global landscape, the global jihadi landscape, as if bin Laden was really controlling these groups. And we find out from the letters that the opposite was the case. Al-Qaeda was, and its leaders struggled mightily to influence these groups. So the way you're talking about bin Laden, Nelly, is he cuts a rather pathetic figure, someone who is powerless and in isolation with no one around him to fulfil his wishes while he continues to have this obsession with the United States. Is this made worse for him by the fact that there are drones hunting for him and every single member of Al-Qaeda? Is this something that plays on his mind or is he, is he not bothered? No, he was very much bothered because, you know, the drones had started early, but sometimes, say, maybe 2007, 2008, every second letter that reached bin Laden would include, you know, references to martyred brothers by the drones. And we find out from the letters that Al-Qaeda tried to figure out what to do with the drones, but they had very limited resources. They ended up setting up a security committee to investigate how to counter the drones. And the budget that they were given was about less than $500. And we find out that, to their credit, they knew quite a lot about how the drones operated. And the most important thing that they were able to figure out was the drones and spies nexus. They ascertained that for the drones to work or to be able to identify their target, they needed to have spies on the ground. And here we find out that the, to, to quote one letter, that the area, meaning North Kyrgyzstan, was infested with spies. And they needed, in order for Al-Qaeda to counter this threat, they needed to be able to buy the loyalty of the locals but it was the CIA that had more money to clearly, according to their letters, it was the CIA that had their loyalty, the more money to, to purchase the loyalty of the locals. And apparently, according to the letters, the CIA had the support of the Pakistani intelligence, which from Al-Qaeda's perspective, the ISI and the CIA were two sides of the same coin. Now, judging by the letters, they worked out how the drones work. They even dismantled several spying networks. And as far as Al-Qaeda was concerned, it was easy and simple to evade the drones. All you needed to do was to hide. Now, Al-Qaeda faced two insurmountable problems in countering the drones. Firstly, its men and other jihadis were not disciplined. 
And we learn from the letters that they weren't going to listen to the instructions of Al-Qaeda that wanted them really to stay hiding. And we're not talking hiding because of carrying operational activities here. They couldn't even take their car to the garage. They would be spotted if they even they took the car to the garage. It's that effective. The reconnaissance must have been that effective that they really had to stay in hiding. And here, put yourself in the shoes of the jihadis. These are jihadis that uh, took up jihad because they wanted to fight in God's path, not to hide in his name. And as I was reading the literature, these letters about the effective security measures, I was somewhat disoriented. I'd been reading jihadi ideological texts for years. And this literature focuses on the importance of fighting or taking up jihad, on shaming those who don't. So a lot of incitement in this literature on fighting in God's name. So all of a sudden, we find in this new literature that I wasn't familiar with, was how security and watchfulness were also God's commands. So they were citing these references from the Quran about why the Quran and God commands us to be watchful, meaning to hide. So if I was disoriented, imagine those people who were growing up with this ideological literature and this ideological mindset, having to switch from fighting into hiding. So this was clearly a cultural problem, a bicultural, I'm talking militant cultural component of jihadism. The second part, spying is unlawful in Islam. And I learned about this from the great scholar Michael Cook. And here we find out from the literature that in order for Al-Qaeda to counter the drones and dismantle these spying networks, they had to spy themselves. And spying is unlawful. So we find them being defensive about this in the letters. So clearly, this really didn't work to their advantage. They had these two obstacles were insurmountable. And so by 2011, early 2011, we find Bin Laden's top associate in North Waziristan writing to Bin Laden saying to the effect that we're going to continue to die. We've got no other option. The people, the men are not disciplined, and we're going to continue to die. Bin Laden had, in effect, told his associates that you should find secure places for the brothers somewhere else outside North Waziristan, places in Pakistan, like where he was living, hiding in plain sight, meaning that they would be living with local Pakistanis, but hiding in their places. And, you know, the responses from the letters that the brothers would rather be martyred in North Waziristan and not being captured by Pakistan's ISI. So the drones really devastated Al-Qaeda. This is fascinating to learn because I've been working on drones for a very, very long time. It's, it's very rare that you get such a clear image of how they were viewed from the other side or how effective they were. And like you say... They were effective and, and, and they're forcing Bin Laden to hide, to stay put, which must have been, well, was it seen as quite shameful by his associates? Did he lose some credibility while they were martyring themselves in North Waziristan? Was he seen as being a coward? No, not at all. In fact, everybody 
the, the instructions was that everybody should be hiding. That was the instruction. They understood that they were getting into a, a new phase. And he wanted, so it's not as if he was doing this and he wanted others to be, quote unquote, martyred. He wanted everybody to, to be hiding. It's just they, they were not disciplined enough to do so. Now, as I said, the drones were highly effective. And I'm sure you know that there are several different points of views about the drones. Some would contend that they are highly effective. Others would emphasize the blowback effects. I found them to be very, very effective in relation to Al-Qaeda. Having said that, I, I'm not sure that we can generalize their effectiveness toward other groups that are more disciplined than Al-Qaeda. And I highlighted the two obstacles that prevented Al-Qaeda from countering or evading the drones. So other better trained groups, more disciplined, may not necessarily may be able to evade the drones in, in ways that Al-Qaeda couldn't. And other groups that learn lessons from Al-Qaeda's mistakes. So bring us towards the end of this story, because there's a question that I've been dying to ask you throughout this, because you're telling us that he's in hiding, he's keeping a low profile, He's isolated, but then he's able to communicate these thousands of files that you're saying are letters being sent backwards and forwards. And I'm assuming this isn't a kind of FedEx delivery. There's no postman coming to his door. So how on earth is he able to communicate like this? And is it his undoing? Well, actually, first let me give some credit to bin Laden and to Al-Qaeda here because he was able to evade the authorities, including the world's superpower, for so long, precisely because he adhered to security measures that were highly restrictive. Now, the reason why we have all these internal communications is because bin Laden wasn't meeting with his associates in person. All communications occurred between him and his associates through letters. These letters were, to be clear, were not sent by email. So the bin Ladens were confined to the compound and we learned from the letters that they didn't have any internet in the compound and they didn't have a telephone. So there were two Pakistani brothers who lived next door and Osama bin Laden refers to them as his security guards. They did all the grocery shopping for the bin Ladens and, and so on. Now, how did these communications happen? How did they successfully transmit these letters? As you can appreciate, these things are hardly discussed in the letters for security reasons. Fortunately, one letter that was written in 2010 describes this process. And the reason why this letter exists is because at some point in 2010, bin Laden was planning the 10th anniversary of 9-11 and he wanted to speed up, you know, the release of his public statements. And he consulted with his top associate about whether he should, you know, send his own letters directly to the jihadi media outlet that is sympathetic with Al-Qaeda, Al-Sahab. And we get the letter from his associate and in it he says, well, I thought long and hard about this and absolutely not. <laughs> he told him that this would compromise our security and we shouldn't allow many people to have access. So it turned out, and in that letter, he describes to bin Laden how these 
letters were being transmitted. Imagine even bin Laden didn't know the details of how his own letters were transmitted. It turns out we find out from the letter that this occurred, you know, through a closed circle, meaning there were two intermediaries, one on the side of North Waziristan, one on the side of bin Laden, and a courier in between. Now, the security guards next door played a minor role in taking the outgoing or incoming letters and meeting one of the intermediaries some, somewhere in Pakistan, possibly in Peshawar. And so bin Laden didn't meet the courier, let alone knew his name. And what's more, the courier didn't know the identity of the person whose letters he was carrying. So he was a businessman and he thought that he was being, he was doing some errands for some jihadi families, but he didn't know that this was all had to do with bin Laden. Now, the last thing I expected to discover in the letters is how bin Laden's security was compromised. Amazingly, there were some clues. And in the book, I detail, I put together, I piece together these clues and I detail what went wrong for Osama bin Laden. I don't know what went right for the CIA, but I can, I'm confident about what went wrong for Osama bin Laden. At some point, the intermediary on the side of North Waziristan was briefly detained by the Pakistani intelligence. Now, perhaps the Pakistani intelligence suspected some nefarious business and decided to watch his movement after they released him. I don't know. This might have been sometimes in 2010. Now, in January 2011, the courier, who happens to be the brother-in-law of this intermediary was captured by the Pakistani intelligence. Now, we don't know how the letters were transmitted between January 2011 until May 1st, the raid. Perhaps Al-Qaeda took additional risks. We don't know. Bin Laden understood that something was wrong. And one of his last letters dated 26th of April, we find him writing in his notes, showing his concern about the capture of the courier. But for family reasons, he decided to ignore him, to ignore this aspect. I expected him to, to start packing, but he wanted to reunite his family and he ignored this situation. Now, my suspicion is that the capture firstly of the intermediary and then subsequently of the courier might have led the CIA to discover Bin Laden's hideout. Nelly, that is truly incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the Warfare podcast. And you've got to tell us where can people get the book? What's the title? Where can we read more? Well, the book is entitled The Bin Laden Papers. It was published with Yale University Press in April 2012. And they have done a terrific job distributing it. So it's available in on Amazon as well as most independent stores. In all good bookstores. Well, Nelly, thank you again. And you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.